How do I love thee? Let me count the ways. That is the very familiar beginning to a sonnet published in 1850 by Elizabeth Barrett Browning. And it is thought that it was written by her for her husband, Robert Browning, at that time. But as I read this sonnet, I could not help but see that so many of the words in that 14-line sonnet, and that's what a sonnet is, I learned, 14 lines. I didn't realize that. But 14 lines there, many of those expressions are so appropriate for how we should feel about the church. How do I love thee? Let me count the ways. That's what I want us to think about today, and I want to tell you why I love the church and why I certainly hope that you share that love. The passage you see on the screen is a passage from 2 Corinthians 11, 28, and it comes at the conclusion of a list of, of persecutions that the Apostle Paul had suffered that he was enumerating, not for the purpose of uh, being uh, a braggart or, or boasting about what he had done, but it was a, a matter of defense, again, of his apostleship against those false teachers and false apostles who were questioning his credibility. And he was simply pointing out to them some of the things that he had endured for the cause of Christ. Why would he have endured all those things had he not been genuinely committed to the Lord and to the church for which the Lord shed his blood. And at the conclusion of that list, he adds something that comes at the last of the list, but certainly not last in terms of his priorities. When he wrote, besides the other things, what comes upon me daily. What is that, Paul? My deep concern for all the churches. My deep concern for all the churches. And speaking of the Corinthians, I think about the conclusion of the first Corinthian letter, a letter that he penned to the church at Corinth that at that time had more than its share of problems and challenges and stood in need of some quite sharp but loving rebuke for a variety of reasons. But near the conclusion of that first epistle, in verse 24 of the final chapter, he said, My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. My love be with you all. He had rebuked them time and again, corrected them for their departures there that they were guilty of, but he corrected because he loved. And he expressed that love. My love be with you all. Do you think that when they read those words, they thought, how could he say such a thing after he has rebuked us? as he has? Hopefully not, because they understood that love does rebuke, that love does correct. But he loved the church. He loved every congregation that he had been privileged to, to begin or to be a part of or have any association with. What about us? Let me tell you why I love the church, and I'd like for you to just simply use the word church to enumerate those reasons as to why I love the church. I love the church because of the Christ that it honors. 
And we could say, and the cross that made it possible. Because the Christ, who is honored by the church and who is the head of the church, shed his precious sinless blood to purchase the church, Acts 20. And verse 28, there the apostle Paul, in reviewing his work among the Ephesian church, as he talked to those elders from Ephesus as they came to him at Miletus, admonished them to take heed to the flock over which the Holy Spirit had made them shepherds to feed the church of God, which he has purchased with his own blood. The church honors the Christ who purchased it through the cross. But one cannot have the cross without the church. And yet today, in the world in which we live, there are myriads of people, tragically, who make that very contention. I don't need the church, I don't need a particular body of believers of which to be a part. I just need to believe in the cross and embrace the cross. That's an impossibility. The church honors Christ, but the way to the Christ is through the cross. But the way to the Christ through the cross involves the church. This passage is not on the screen, but look at a passage that clearly demonstrates what I have just affirmed in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of division between us, having abolished in his flesh... That's the cross, the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. Now listen to verse 16. And that he might reconcile them both, Jew and Gentile, might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross. What is that one body? It's the church that I love. It's the church that we should all love. It is the church that is indispensable. Not just important, but absolutely indispensable to the plan of God because the cross is tied to the church. And Ephesians 2, particularly verse 16, makes that abundantly clear. That indeed, reconciliation of all men, Jew and Gentile, comes through the cross, but in the what? Church, the one body. Do we know for a fact that that body referred to in Ephesians 2.16 is the church? Of course we do. There is one body and one spirit, even as you're called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who's above all and through all and in you all. Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. But go back with me a couple of chapters earlier. After asserting in Ephesians 4, the passage we decided that there is one body, that body is clearly identified as the church. Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. And He, God, gave Him, Christ, to be head over all things to the church, listen to it, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. There's one body, the one church. Are we contending for one denomination among, above all other denominations? No. We're contending for one church above everything. No denominationalism, but unity, and we'll talk more about that in a moment, unity based upon the Christ honored by the church, who is the head of that church, and to honor him, we must love it and be in that body. Well, there's a great passage in John's vision in Revelation chapter 5, verses 12 and 13, which call attention to the honor and to the glory that should be given to the Lamb. 
that is the Christ. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing and every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. That Lamb is the Christ who is on the throne reigning over his kingdom which is the church. And how often have we cited that the church and the kingdom, the church we're talking about loving, is equivalent to the kingdom because they are one and the same. Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it, and I will give to you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Kingdom and church used interchangeably. The church we're talking about this morning is the kingdom. The kingdom is the church. They are not two separate institutions, one of which is to come much later, as the premillennialists contend, that is the kingdom, and that the church is here now as some sort of afterthought, some sort of plan B with God. Because... The Jews rejected Christ initially and he couldn't do what he intended to do. Who can believe it? Tragically, many do, but they should not. The church God had in mind all along. It was in his eternal purpose before the Mosaic age, before the patriarchal age, and the great wisdom of God is now manifest to us in the kingdom, in the church. The Ephesian letter makes that so abundantly clear as it exalts the bride of Christ the body of Christ, the building of Christ, his spiritual body, and his brotherhood, his family. All beautiful figures that are used in that Ephesian epistle to describe the one body, the church, which honors its head, Christ. And that's why we must love it because of the Christ that is honored by it and the cross that made it possible. But I love the church because it is a haven from the world. Oh, yes, if you read the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, beginning there at verse 25, we are reminded in these great verses, in this great sermon, that we should not take thought or be worried, as the New King James says, about what we're going to eat or drink or what we're going to wear. Is not the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. Look at the lilies of the field. He goes on to use these illustrations. If God takes care of them, will he not much more take care of you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things, what? The Gentiles seek. To whom does he refer? Those out here in the world. We're in the haven. We're in the haven from that world. Oh, we're going to go out of this building and into this world, yes, and we're going to continue to live in this world, but nonetheless, if we're a part of the body of the church, we are in that which is a haven from the world. That is, it is a haven from the anxieties of this world. We don't look at this world as those who are not in the haven look at this world. We are not overly troubled by the things of this world as they are. Are we concerned? Yes. Are we overwhelmed? No. Why? Because we are living in harmony with the admonition in the latter part of this text. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own 
trouble. Take it one day at a time and thank God that you are in the haven from the world. Therefore, you don't look at the world as others do, or do we? We shouldn't. Not if we truly understand and appreciate where we're blessed to be if we're a part of the kingdom, the church, because we are in a haven from the world. And I love the church because we live in a world where we need a haven indeed. As Brother Freeman so beautifully pointed out in his fine prayer this morning, this world is falling apart around us in many respects. But thanks be to God, his haven is still intact. And it's still the same haven that it has always been since its establishment on Pentecost when that first gospel sermon was preached and some 3,000 precious souls left the world and entered the haven. And that's where we are today if we're Christians as a part of the body of Christ. And oh, how thankful we ought to be. And oh, how we ought to love the church because it is a haven from the world. But I love the church because of the unity found in it. And when we go to those early verses in Acts, uh, the book of Acts, that depicts the, the beautiful, beautiful unity that existed in the Lord's body right after Pentecost Day, we are certainly reminded of the beauty of harmony and unity and of the kind of unity that the church of our Lord offers to those who will become a part of that body. Now all who, uh, or then those who gladly received his word, Acts 2.41, were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles', apostles doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and prayers. Then fear came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now, all who believed were together and had all things common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Oh, what a beautiful picture there is set before us of unity, the unity for which Christ prayed during his last hours on earth in John chapter 17 where that prayer is recorded. We see that prayer answered in the verses we just read in Acts 2.41 beginning. Neither do I pray for these alone, verse 20 of John 17, that is the apostles alone, but for all those who will believe on me through their word that they may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be one in us. That's exactly what we read about in Acts 2, 41 through 47. And even though there has been a disruption of that unity because of Satan's work over the years in the Lord's kingdom, thanks be to God that all we have to do to reestablish that unity when it is disrupted is to go back to this pattern, the New Testament, and follow it and we'll enjoy the same unity about which we've just read in Acts 2.41 beginning. The kind of unity I believe we have right here in this place and that is also present in so many places across the globe today where God's people love the kingdom, the church, 
and are determined to preserve its unity based not upon an agreement to disagree, but upon the standard, which brings us to the next reason I love the church, because of its rule, because there is a singular specific standard. Aren't you glad or shouldn't you be glad? I hope you are that that's the case. Because I can read in the book of Judges about every man doing that which was right in his own eyes, and that didn't work out well at all. Never has, never will. But the Lord's church has a rule. But thankfully, it's not the rule of man. It's not a creed book. It's not a prayer book. It is not something that man has devised, but it is the New Testament the last will and testament of Jesus Christ, and we are to walk by that rule. And the Apostle Paul made that abundantly clear in his letter to the Philippian church at chapter 3, verse 16, where he reminded those Christians, nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us be of the same mind. Is it possible to walk by the same rule? Is it possible to be of the same mind? If not, why did Paul call for that kind of unity. Of course it is. Why did Paul write in the first Corinthian letter and plead with the Corinthians there who were divided at that time in preacher following, some following Paul and Cephas and, and some claiming to be of Christ. Is Christ divided, he asked? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? The answer is no. Therefore be one. Be of the same mind. Walk by the same rule. What rule is that? John twelve forty eight. He who rejects me, Jesus said, and does not receive my words, has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. I know that I'm going to be judged by his word, the word that's recorded here by inspiration through the providence of God, that it has been preserved in its entirety, in its completeness, in its wholeness, that it guides me from earth to heaven, and that it will judge me when I stand before God in Christ. And therefore I must follow this rule and reject anything that is contrary to it, that man seeks to interject. Oh, I love the church because it has not only a rule, but the rule. That is the God-given rule, His inspired Word. But also I love the church because of the compassion that it shows. I love the White Oak Church for this very reason. Because the compassion of this church has been manifested over the years, time and time again, and continues to be manifested toward those who are weeping, with them we weep. With those who rejoice, we rejoice in fulfillment of the admonition of the Apostle Paul in the Roman epistle. And when there is a, a need, there is a compassionate response to that need. The apostle, or the writer of Hebrews, many believe the apostle Paul was this writer, but the writer of Hebrews was an inspired writer nonetheless, and he was in appreciation, and he was someone in chains, and we know Paul spent a lot of time in chains, don't we? For you had compassion on me, Hebrews 10:34, in my chains, and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Oh, we should all know that and appreciate that. 
No matter who may plunder our goods, no matter what we may lose in terms of the material things of this life, we have a better and enduring possession for ourselves in heaven. Therefore, verse 35, do not cast away your confidence, which has a great reward. Don't cast away your confidence. Don't let anything that happens in this life cause you to cast away your hope for the next life. Because you've got a more enduring possession than anything that anyone could take away from you in this life. Compassion. The Hebrews writer appreciated that compassion that was shown to him. And time and again, that writer as well as others called upon the church to continually demonstrate that compassion toward others. But finally, I love the church because of heaven, which is the ultimate home of those who are in the church. How important is the church? The church we read about in the New Testament, not a denomination among denominations, but as we often say, the pre-denominational church that we read about in the New Testament that existed before any denomination came into existence and that still exists today and that men and women can be a part of today just by following this pattern. What is its ultimate home? Heaven. And heaven is the ultimate home of those and only those, only those who are a part of that pre-denominational body. That he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, Paul wrote in Ephesians 5, 27, but that it should be holy and without blemish. That he might what? Present it to himself. When is that? Look at 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 24. When is that presentation going to take place? That is, when is the Lord Jesus Christ, who is now the head of the church, when is he coming back to take the church home to the Father and present it to him as a glorious church without spot or blemish? We don't know when. We just know he's going to do that. 1 Corinthians 15, 24 makes that abundantly clear. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom, that's the church, to God the Father. Notice it. When he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. Christ is reigning now over his kingdom, the church. At some point in time, we know not when, he is coming back. He is going to come back and take the church home to heaven, the ultimate home of the glorious blood-bought body of Christ, the spiritual body over which he is now head. And he'll deliver that body, the kingdom, to God the Father. Where must I be in order to be a part of that present, if you will, that Christ is going to give to God in the body, in the kingdom, in the church? The husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body, Ephesians 5. He is the Savior of the body. Again, the Ephesian letter is so abundantly clear in its exaltation of the body of Christ as the singular institution in which I must find myself when the Lord comes again living faithfully in order to be delivered to God the Father. And that passage we just cited in Ephesians 5.23 makes it abundantly clear, doesn't it? 
The husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is also the what? Head of the church, and he is the what of the church? The savior of the church. Savior of the body, savior of the church. One and the same. And one day, he's coming back to take the church home to God the Father. And that's why I love the church, because the Lord's coming back for his church. And I must be a part of it. Besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. If I have that deep concern, if I have that kind of love that Paul expressed for the church, what will be the result? I'll rejoice, first of all, to be in it. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice, Philippians 4.4. 4. I will refuse to hurt it, as this passage would clearly indicate. How am I going to hurt something that I have such deep concern and love for? I'm going to make absolutely sure that I do nothing to hurt the body of Christ. And the body is not this building. The body is the people. Therefore, I'm not going to hurt my brothers and sisters who constitute the body of Christ. If I love the church, I'll rejoice to be in it. I will refuse to hurt it, and I will reflect the love that Christ had for it. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. And glorify your Father in heaven. Where? In the church. Because there can be no glorification of God by anyone outside of the church for which Jesus shed his blood. And this very morning, you can become a part of that kingdom, the church. A part of the body of Christ so that you can sing as we sang earlier. How sweet, how heavenly is the sight when those that love the Lord in one another's peace delight and so fulfill the word. When each can feel his brother sigh and with him bear a part, when sorrow flows from eye to eye and joy from heart to heart, What's being described in those words we have just sung, hopefully with all sincerity and conviction? The church is being depicted here. When free from envy, scorn, and pride, our wishes all above, each can his brother's failings hide and show a brother's love. Doesn't mean we tolerate sin, but it does mean that we, we're not wearing our feelings on our sleeves either and... We are long-suffering and patient with our brothers and sisters, doesn't it? When love in one delightful stream, listen to that, through every bosom flows, when union sweet and dear esteem in every action glows. Oh, love is the golden chain that binds the happy souls above. And he's an heir of heaven who finds his bosom glow with love. Is your bosom glowing with love for the church this morning? It can't be if you're not a part of it. It can't be if you're not a faithful, loving part of it. And either way, you need to do something about that. If you haven't been added to the church by the Lord through obedience to the gospel, we plead with you to do that this very morning. By a belief in Jesus as the Christ, John 8, 24, believe that I am he or die in your sins. 
that leads you to repent of your sins. I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all in like manner perish, Luke 13, 3, the Lord said. That leads you then to sweeten your lips with the confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Whoever confesses me before men, him will I also confess before my Father in heaven, Matthew 10, 32, the Lord said. And yes, the Lord said, when you have become a believer, that is, you believe that I am he, when you have repented of your sins, that has changed your mind about where you are, you're in this world, you want out of this world, you want in that haven, and you're willing to confess me before men, and then you're willing to be baptized, buried with me in baptism where my blood awaits to cleanse you from sin, then and only then will I add you to my church, my kingdom. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. The Lord's words in Mark 16, 16. And as you come forth from that watery grave, you have been added by the Lord. You haven't joined anything. The Lord has added you to his kingdom, the church, the body of Christ. And oh, oh, how you should spend the rest of your days loving the church. As so many here do and have. And I'm confident will until your dying breath or until the Lord comes again. There may be someone here who has not loved the church, having embraced the gospel and obeyed it and been added to the body of Christ, but you know this morning that your life has not reflected the love that you once had for the church and that you need to repent of that in a public way because your sin is known in a public way. We plead with you to come home to the church and to the Lord and to know the love you once knew and to manifest it from this day forward in your life. If you need to respond, will you come now as we stand and sing to encourage? <clears throat>